Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McRae. Thank you for subscribing, downloading, rating. As always, we do appreciate it. I know I say it uh, each and every week, but thank you for letting people know about the program. Uh, it, it really helps us grow our audience. Um, if this is your first time listening, I hope you enjoy it. If you'd like to contact us, you can email us, scienceatnewstalk.com, and we get to all of those comments at the end of the show. Coming up on this episode, we're going to be talking about MDMA and its unusual path to becoming a treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder in the United States. First, though, it's time to look back at the week's science news. And joining me in studio is Dr. Ruth Freeman uh, from Science Foundation Ireland and Owen Murphy, science communicator. And while the biggest news story of this week is, of course, the shocking uh, heat that we see across the planet, uh, looks like the hottest seven days on the history of the uh, of the planet as, as we've recorded it, um, there's not much more to say about that that we haven't said on the program. And so it, while it is a, the most important news story, it's not uh, one of the stories that we're going to be covering in depth this week. We have, as you know, covered environmental disaster, climate change and global warming many times in the program. And we will continue to do so, just not this particular week. Uh, because Ruth, our, our first story is actually a, a really interesting one about, I suppose, the persistence of life. That's right, Jonathan. This is kind of following up from work that was done by an amazing kind of genomics entrepreneur called Craig Venter. And back over 10 years ago, Craig Venter essentially replicated a a bacterium from scratch. So sort of made a synthetic bacterium, a version of something called Mycoplasma mycoides. So he made this small bacteria, about 900 genes. And then he, he sort of decided, well, what if I paired back the genes? What's the smallest synthetic genome I could make? And he made a bacteria that that could exist that only had about 400, that had 473 genes. And this is work that's a follow-up from that. It's from a guy called Jay Lennon in Indiana University. And he actually recalls seeing Craig Venter present this work at a conference a few years ago. And he said, but can a cell like that evolve? Because of course we know evolution needs mutations and it needs raw material. So if you only have the bare minimum number of genes to survive, where's the redundancy? Can evolution happen? So it was a really exciting question. So, so he and his team recreated one of these synthetic tiny bacteria. It does have 493 genes just so it will actually replicate in the lab and be functional. And first thing they did was they just said, well, can it actually mutate? Can it tolerate any mutation? mutations. And it turns out it can quite happily. Uh, So they left it there mutating away. They looked at the mutation rate. They found it was equivalent to the non-minimal cell, which is kind of the original one they started with. Um, And in fact, it can mutate. It's one of the highest rates they've ever seen. So, So quite happily, over hundreds and hundreds of days, this cell could replicate. Ruth, how many generations of a bacteria is that? I mean, how often does a bacteria so split? It two, it's 2,000 generations. So that's equivalent to about 40,000 human years. So right. you know, it's not a huge amount of time in no. evolutionary time, but but certainly for, for bacteria it is. Um, they then looked at fitness because because one of the ways you can look at fitness is, well, how well can a bacteria replicate? How well can it produce offspring? And when they found when they initially stripped it down to, to, to this minimal genome, uh, it lost about 50% of its fitness. But what was amazing was in that time, it essentially recovered all of that fitness. Um, so, so, so not only could it mutate just as fast as the, the, the regular um, version of this cell, which has about twice the number of genes, it could recover that fitness very, very quickly, which, which was kind of incredible. 
the genes that were removed, Ruth, what what were they? What were they? Were they in the junk, so-called junk DNA part of um, the 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 genome? I mean, there there were all sorts of different genes. I mean, some of the genes that they removed here were actually ones that helped the cell do things like repair its DNA, which which were thought to be absolutely essential. But but in the, in the, in the minimal version, it could still replicate without them. There are genes that that do impact on which base pairs. You know, when we look at the genetic code, there's different chemicals that get pulled in. So you can see the mutated cell has a preference for certain types of the genetic code, but it doesn't seem to impede it getting back its fitness. And in fact, when they put it in a competition experiment. What they did was they they put a competition, three different types of cells. So they had the minimal cell that had no opportunity to evolve. They then had the minimal cell, which had evolved for 300 days and the original cell with about double the number of genes. And they found that the minimal cell, once it had had time to evolve for those kind of, uh, you know, 300 days, it came second in that competition. So it was back up competing with the kind of original version of the synthetic cell. This, I suppose, tells us something fundamental about evolution and this amazing, I suppose, I would say desire to, to thrive, but uh, desire is the wrong word. Well, I mean, they, they quote Jurassic Park in the paper and certainly in a lot of the press, life finds a way. <laughs> and it certainly seems to be the case here that when you have any raw material like this, you know, whether you're putting a selective pressure on it, like in the competition experiment, or just allowing it to grow and mutate, you know, mutation is a natural part of, of, of life. And it, it's an essential thing to have this fitness and evolution. But it, it's absolutely fascinating. I mean, we still don't quite understand what's happened. Have any of the genes replicated? I mean, we know that's happened in some cases in evolution. You know, it must mean that when mutations have happened, they've been tolerated and positive potentially. So really, really exciting uh, work that's just come out this week. Really cool stuff. And and I suppose it does make you wonder how on earth we can be the only um, planet that's uh, that uh, sustains life. I mean, it does make you question that when we see the the perseverance of of life. Owen, um, to the the southern hemisphere now and the Tasmanian devil, which um, people may or may not know, is susceptible to a very rare type of cancer, a transmissible one. Yes, Jonathan. For most of us, when we think of the Tasmanian devil, we more than likely have a vision of an aggressive, feisty animal, probably because we remember the Warner Brothers Looney Tunes character Taz chasing Bugs Bunny. The devil, as they refer to, are in fact the world's largest carnivorous marsupial. And although they will hunt small prey, they actually prefer to scavenge. As they're the top terrestrial predator in Tasmania, they, they play a vital role in maintaining ecosystems. But the species is in trouble. Over the past three decades, a contagious cancer known as devil facial tumor disease has ripped through the population, reducing their numbers by 80%. An extremely rare type of cancer in nature, the tumor cells have evolved in such a way that they contain very few major histocompatibility complex class 1 proteins, these being the markers which the immune system uses to identify foreign invaders. As a result, the cancers can then spread when the devils bite each other in fights for food or over mates. And as it spreads, it leads to the development of tumours on their neck, face and inside their mouth. And um, this can often lead to the devil's teeth being pushed out with the infected devils ultimately dying from starvation. But just last month, Australia's Office of the Gene Technology Regulator issued a license to a team of researchers at the University of Tasmania to test a vaccine on 22 healthy captive Tasmanian devils. Now, there was a previous attempt to vaccinate for this contagious cancer, but it only resulted in one in five devils mounting a strong enough immune response. But as we know, 
Since 2017, a lot has happened in the field of vaccine research and development. Using similar technology to that used in the AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson vaccines, they've been able to push the research forward. So the vaccine will be carried into cells by an adenovirus, a type of virus which normally causes mild cold-like symptoms in humans, but has been modified so it cannot multiply or cause disease. So when the vaccine enters the devil cells, they begin to produce proteins that exist in tumor cells, but not most healthy cells. By doing this, the proteins train the immune system to recognize the tumor cells as being a foreign invader. And if they are infected, they should now have the ability to mount an immune response. Right. When are we going to know whether or not this approach is successful? Ah, that's that. This is this is the beginning. Okay, so they need to run this through. Um, so this is it's the beginning of the trial. They've just got they've just got the go ahead. But I think what's probably uh, vital here is, is that it has to be done urgently because for the preservation of ecosystems across Tasmania, the devils need help. So as their numbers have been declining for the past three decades, so have other small native animals as invasive species such as feral cats, foxes and black rats have no competition. But what what I think is really important about this here is it demonstrates how research and innovation in one field, COVID-19 vaccines, can lead to unforeseen benefits across science in general. I mean, that is really, you know, you look at, we, we, we pump money into one area and we don't really know necessarily if it's going to succeed there, but it can be transferable. And this is really the case here. Brilliant stuff. And let's hope that it's successful because, of course, um, it is such an iconic species. Um, Ruth, our third story has to do with uh, xenotransplantation. And we've covered this story many, many times because it's fascinating. Um, what have we learned from the first pig heart transplant? Yeah, Jonathan, well, for, for people who, who aren't familiar with the story, it was only in 2022. There was a 57-year-old man called David Bennett, and, and he was in acute heart failure. You know, he was deemed not to have long to live, and he was the first person to receive a heart from a pig. Um, it wasn't just a heart plucked from any pig. Uh, it was from a company called Revivacore, and they had genetically modified pigs. They'd used CRISPR technology, and they had amended 10 genes in these pigs to to make the heart more compatible with humans. So so after David got the heart, initially progress was really good. Uh, you know, he had seven weeks where the heart didn't seem to be being rejected and it was successfully pumping blood around his body. But he did, unfortunately, then have a sudden onset of heart failure uh, around then. Um, and really, the surgeons didn't fully understand why this had happened. Um, They did suspect a couple of things. I mean, they suspected that possibly it was just organ rejection. That, you know, obviously part of that could be your immune system, anti-pig antibodies being created that would attack the heart. But they were also slightly concerned that a pig virus might have um, attacked the heart. And obviously, you know, having gone through or in the midst of the pandemic, you know, we're also very concerned about any technology that could potentially bring animal viruses into contact with humans. Um, but but a new paper in The Lancet this week is, is really looking back to see what happened. And really what they found is looking back at all the tissues and all the tests they did during the time when David was alive, that they can't really put their finger on one single thing that that led to this failure. I mean, they certainly underline that he was incredibly unwell when this happened. And of course, that is inevitable when we're looking at these new kind of quite extreme medical treatments that they're only going to be approved and and really can only be used ethically initially on people who have no other options. So so he was incredibly last ditch effort. Exactly. And that meant really that they couldn't give the full 
anti-rejection drugs that they would normally give because this was someone whose system was already, you know, very, very frail. So to dampen down your immune system even more would, would be potentially damaging and open you up to other kinds of infection. But they, they do think because they couldn't use that full suite of the more potent drugs that pre- pre- prevent uh, transplant rejection normally, that there were indeed antibodies produced against the heart. So that did seem to happen. And of course, they were actually giving antibodies as part of the cocktail. So that would have stimulated the immune system. The other thing, though, is the virus. And then the virus they were concerned about is kind of a latent virus that you get in pigs. It doesn't cause severe issues in pigs. It kind of gives them a bit of a snuffle and a runny nose. It's called porcine cytomegalovirus. And they did, they did detect a, that virus, which which right. is slightly slightly worrying. I mean, the pigs are produced in highly sterile conditions, and certainly, I think they've even improved the protocol since then. But but very much the tone of this paper by the surgeons is really to to recognise, I suppose, the bravery of this person who underwent this treatment. You know that certainly parts of it seemed to go well. Um, that they've now learned a lot. And, and really their aspiration is that, you know, maybe one day this is a reasonable route for people with heart failure because they point out in the paper, it's US based, that 17 people die every day waiting for a heart transplant. So, you know, wh- while it's not, you know, maybe ideal to be going down this route of having genetic, genetically modified pigs, you know, there's a huge demand there. Which, which we just can't meet otherwise. So, you know, I think there's there's also an onus on us to, to come up with solutions. Absolutely. Love to get your thoughts on that. You can um, email us, scienceatnewstalk.com. Is, is this, you know, from an ethics point of view, is, is this the, the way that we should be going given the, the risk and loss of human life when it comes to heart failure? Um, oh, and our final story is a really interesting one. It's to do with birds and divorce, which is not something I knew they did. Yes, uh, divorce rates in birds is not a sentence I thought I'd ever hear myself saying on the radio, but here we are. So about 90% of bird species are monogamous, meaning they have one mate at a time. But in certain cases, despite the original mate remaining alive, some monogamous birds will decide to switch partners for the subsequent breeding season. When this happens, the behavior is labeled as divorce. Earlier this week, a group of scientists based in China and Germany published their findings in the proceedings of the Royal Society, claiming to have identified two key factors that they believe are involved in divorce across a range of species. The two factors being male promiscuity and long distance migrations. (laughs) To conduct this study, they used three different data sources, previously published data on divorce rates for 232 species of birds, along with mortality data and migration distances. They then gave males and females of each species a separate promiscuity score. And finally, they factored in the evolutionary relationship between species to see if common ancestry may be a driving force. What they found was that species with high divorce rates were closely related to each other from an evolutionary point of view, as were species with low divorce rates. Similar pattern was seen with male promiscuity, that being high promiscuity led to high divorce rates, whereas bird species with lower divorce rates had lower male promiscuity. (laughs) So uh, this is not a uniquely human thing. Absolutely not. I mean, uh, it's not. And I mean, I looked up um, out of interest, what are the two most common reasons for divorce in humans? And they would be infidelity and lack of commitment. Now, where this fits into this story is that um, why would it be that male promiscuity and and migration would increase divorce rates? Well, the authors believe that male promiscuity could be perceived as a reduction in their commitment levels, as his attention (laughs) and resources has to be divided across a number of females, ultimately making him less attractive and more likely to be divorced next season. 
Look, I mean, it makes perfect sense. Um, but it, it's not something I was ever aware of, um, that, that birds um, who normally couple for life uh, can divorce. Well, I've got one more, but if it was possibly more interesting is that the authors suggest that female promiscuity may not lead to the same outcomes because the uncertainty around the offspring paternity can actually lead to increased male involvement in parental care. Explain that to me. So I think what they're saying is that if the female has multiple partners, the male is so concerned about the offspring and whether it's his or not, he'll actually stick around and do more work, which is what, <laughs> not what you'd expect. Very good. Very good. All right. Um, Owen Murphy, science communicator and Dr. Ruth Freeman from Science Foundation Ireland. Thank you very much. Now, long before ecstasy was vilified as an illegal party drug, it began its life as a medicine. Now it seems it may be returning to that role. To tell me more, I'm joined by Rachel Newer. She's a science journalist and author of I Feel Love, MDMA and the Quest for Connection in a Fractured World. Welcome to the program, uh, Rachel. Did you know, I had no idea uh, of the origins of MDMA. Uh, so t- tell me a little bit about uh, MDMA and, and where, it, where it came from, please. Yeah, I mean, I think few people do really know the origins of MDMA. We associate it with the party drug ecstasy that took off, um, especially in the UK in the late 80s. In fact, MDMA was synthesized first long before that by the German pharmaceutical company Merck. Uh, They filed a patent for MDMA on Christmas Eve 1912. It wasn't until 1975, however, that the psychoactive properties of MDMA began to really be recognized, starting in the Bay Area um, by therapists who realized that MDMA could be this really incredible catalyst for all kinds of therapy, whether couples counseling to PTSD, um, to just getting to know the self better. Okay, so there there was this period, because, you know, it it really struck me as odd that... um, that from what I knew, we had this thing called ecstasy, and uh, and and that scientists hadn't been thinking. Well, if something makes you feel really good, and <laughs> and more open to new ideas and new experiences, then why are we not trying to harness this good for for medicine? But actually, this is the original um, use of it. So, what happened between the the early twentieth century and the eighties? Um, what, where did the MDMA, because presumably it wasn't Merck selling the, the, the ecstasy that we saw on the streets. So there were all kinds of interesting ins and outs that I get into in my book. Um, you know, Merck kind of touched on this molecule a few times over the, the next decades after they filed that patent. Merck claims that they never did discover the psychoactive properties. MDMA also caught the eye of the U.S. Army and CIA in the 1950s when, um, our government over here was experimenting on people's brains, trying to find a chemical truth serum, really uh, unethical chapter in U.S. history. What we do know for sure, though, is that in 1975, the psychedelic chemist Alexander Shulgin uh, resynthesized MDMA um, with a student of his at a lab at the University of California, Berkeley. Then Shulgin tried the drug himself the next year and was really impressed. He called it his low-calorie martini because it kind of allowed him to just be sociable and chatty but not lose control. Um, but he also kept uh, – this this word kept popping into his head when he was on MDMA of window. He felt like it really opened uh, a person up, like made them more receptive to, to talking, to be uh, being open, open like a window. And he introduced it to a therapist friend of his who spread it around the Bay Area, around the U.S., and subsequently even to Europe. 
Now, therapists were really, really impressed with MDMA as this tool, but they knew because of what happened to LSD a few years before with the 1971 Controlled Substances Act in the U.S., um, you know, LSD was banned, that if word about this new drug got out, the U.S. government was absolutely going to crack down because this was at the height of the war on drugs. Um, that is actually what wound up happening. You know, therapists were trying to keep quiet about it in their practices. They weren't talking much about it. They weren't publishing about it, but it did escape from the therapist's couch onto the dance floor. Cause again, it is a drug that makes you feel good. And that is indeed when it caught the eye of the DEA here in the U S and they moved to schedule it in 1985. Um, Therapists actually pushed back against that decision. They wanted it to be a Schedule Three drug, which would allow it to be used for medicine and research. But the DEA just kind of bulldozed ahead and did what they wanted to do. The, the decision to do that, to, to classify it as what, what we would call a Class A drug, right? It, exactly. It, yeah. So the decision to do that was based on what exactly? Was it based on harm? <laughs> or Yeah, it, it, it really wasn't. Um, so... These therapists, and we're talking very respected people in their field, like a Harvard professor was on this case that they actually took the DEA to court to argue that MDMA cannot be a Schedule One or a Class A drug because it does have medical utility. And the definition of a Schedule One drug is currently no accepted medical use. Um, the DEA argued, however, that MDMA was already out in the world, um, you know, being quote unquote abused and therefore had no utility. And the argument about non-medical utility, it was really nonsensical because uh, they were saying, well, this isn't an approved medication by the um, Food and Drug Administration here in the US. So therefore, it can't be a medicine, even though all of you doctors and therapists are using it because it doesn't have FDA approval. Therefore, it's not a medication. So that was their logic. And there was no, once it, once it was classified as this class A drug, there was no attempt by anyone in in that world, therapists, uh, psychiatrists, medical professionals, to then say, "Okay, um, let's just put it through the FDA and and get it um, approved as a as a medicine for certain um, conditions." That was not. There was well, no 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 desire to do that. No, there was definitely desire. I mean, they spent uh, this group of therapists and doctors spent two years on this case with the uh, DEA. But you know, after the DEA just um, they actually won that case, I should say. But the administrative law judge sided with them and said, "Yes, MDMA does have medical utility. You've proven that it should be a Schedule Three drug." Uh, but because this was an administrative law case, that was only taken as an opinion. It wasn't binding. So the DEA just said, "Nope, we're doing what we want to do. We're scheduling it." Um, after that, most people did give up. They thought, all right, there's no way we're going to be able to do research on MDMA. There's no way we're going to work with MDMA. Some people continued to operate underground, but, you know, they were risking their license. They were risking their sa their um, their safety, their um, livelihood, their freedom even. Uh, there was one individual, however, who didn't give up on this. His name was Rick Doblin, and um, he had really just made it his quest to bring MDMA back into the light of scientific and medical respectability. So he founded an organization in 1986 called the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, and um, that group MAPS for short, has continued to spearhead efforts over the last nearly 38 years to bring MDMA back to medicalization. And they've been the ones sponsoring the trials for MDMA-assisted therapy that 
uh, listeners have probably read about in the news. So it's it's really just been this um, single-minded quest on the part of MAPS that we're seeing MDMA now become nearly a legalized medicine here in the U.S. probably by this time next year. It's probably um, unsurprising, I suppose, that that you know a, an organization that dedicates itself to um, making psychedelic um, drugs. Um, or, or you know, currently illegal party drugs that that they find it difficult, perhaps, to 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 gain traction sometimes in certain uh, jurisdictions, uh, and I imagine the same um, stands for LSD being used, uh, um, uh, cannabis, and so on. The the road to actually identifying and and recording this is actually useful for something is much longer as a result of those um, cultural ties that, um, that that are bound to drugs like these. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, Rick Doblin's strategy was to, he went to Harvard, he got his PhD there, and he's really worked within the system here, the bureaucracy. Um, You know, the government would say, yeah, of of course you can do research on scheduled drugs. You just have to, you know, do your research. But then Rick would say, okay, well, how do you actually do that from the inside out? And you know, he's just put in the effort to go through all these seemingly endless red tape and bureaucracy um, to make that happen officially working within the framework of the federal government. Um, you know, it's taken decades, but uh, perseverance seems to be paying off. You mentioned evidence that this was working as a medical treatment for some um, for some conditions. What evidence was there before this current generation of researchers managing to to publish within the new framework and and show that it is effective for for something like PTSD? What was the evidence beforehand from the the earlier time before it became illegal? There was a lot of anecdotal evidence. Um, A lot of that was presented in, in that court case with the DEA. There had been at least one scientific study published, but again, people just weren't publishing a lot about it because they were trying to keep quiet. Um, I interviewed several people for my book who took this, you know, when it was still legal or in the 80s and had um, miraculously seeming results with their PTSD for various things. Uh, But, you know, the evidence was pretty scarce in terms of, you know, scientifically valid um, trials. So fast forward past... um this, you know, the the illegality and the the, the rave culture that um, that t- took the world by storm, um, really certainly certainly the Western world. Uh, we're now in a situation where MDMA is still illegal and used, perhaps not as much as it was during the nineties and early early um, thousands. Um, but now researchers are, are are making headway in using drugs like this to treat different types of conditions. What has it been tried for, and who is the what what's, what therapeutic areas are the most advanced in terms of getting results by using MDMA? Definitely, the furthest along is MDMA assisted therapy for PTSD, and I really want to emphasize that we're talking about MDMA paired with therapy. This isn't people going to a rave and being miraculously cured of um, whatever mental affliction they have. Um, there are some anecdotal reports of that, but that's not how it normally works. This is going into a therapist's office, um, you know, having preparation sessions, taking the drug with a therapist there to guide you through the experience, and then also having these integration sessions after where you come 
back to your therapist's office while you're sober and talk about what you learned and how you're going to integrate that into your life. So for PTSD, uh, we're definitely the furthest along. Um, two phase three clinical trials have been completed, and this is the last step that's needed here in the U.S. before FDA approval of a new drug application. Um, the results of the first one were published in the scientific literature in May 2021, and they were really impressive. Um, it was around 100 people, and two-thirds of them emerged after three sessions of MDMA-assisted therapy spaced one month apart with no longer having a PTSD diagnosis. Um, and this is pretty stunning wow. because, yeah, these are people with severe PTSD. They'd had it for... Um, this condition for over 10 years on average. Things for for, for those who aren't familiar, can you just uh, tell me what the symptoms are of PTSD? Oh, yeah. I mean, PTSD is really a uh, life-altering condition. Um, you know, we often think, think about it in association with um, combat veterans, which that's a very prevalent uh, part of this patient population, but it's not the most prevalent. The most prevalent would, pe would be people who have been traumatized as children, whether from um, overt abuse or just neglect. Also, women who have suffered domestic violence or rape, um, those are really the largest patient populations. Um, symptoms can range from um, disassociation and that's not just disassociation from your fear and the cause of your PTSD, but also just emotions in general, like an inability to feel love, to feel like you're fully embodied or alive. Other people have the sort of, um, I guess, stereotypical symptoms that you would think of that you'd see on a television documentary, you know, like easily startled, easily angered, um, you know, insomnia, nightmares, just an inability to really connect with others and, and lead a normal life. Um, and that's because, PTSD literally rewires your brain. There's tons of studies showing that the brains of people with PTSD are definitely different than the brains of those without. Um, so MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD, it seems to be effective for some of the most difficult cases. You know, things, uh, people who have tried talk therapy, who have tried the medications and it's failed. You know, it's not a silver bullet. Like no medication or no treatment is going to work for everybody, but for a significant number of people, it seems like this is a therapy that provides real hope. Um, in well, terms two -third, of two thirds uh, success rate um, yeah. out of a hundred is, is astonishing for any drug. I mean, that's, that's incredible. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, and how would was, that compare uh, to how, yeah. how would that compare to um, you know CBT, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, um, without MDMA in terms of results? I mean, is it a significant improvement on on the you know the non drug version of that therapy? Yeah, it's definitely definitely a significant improvement. Um, the thing is, most people drop out of talk therapy for PTSD because it's just it's too painful or, you know, they just disassociate and it's like, what, what is the point of this? It's not working in terms of the pharmaceuticals. There is no quote unquote cure for PTSD. The drugs that are approved for it just paper over the symptoms and kind of let you get on with life rather than actually treat what is, um, you know, the origin of that PTSD. Um, you, you talked about PTSD being the furthest one, uh, uh, along, what other clinical trials are being undertaken for MDMA at the moment? So there's a trial going on in the UK. Um, I spoke to one of the participants and the lead researcher there. Um, and this is for MDMA-assisted therapy for um, uh, alcohol use disorder. Uh, so MDMA also seems to be effective at helping people rid themselves of um, really crippling addiction to alcohol. The, th the thought is that it will also be effective probably for other types of addiction. Um, 
because the latest scientific literature points to trauma being the driver of lots of addictions. Yeah. People, again, are trying to paper over those symptoms and deal with it. And um, that was the case for the gentleman I interviewed. He had witnessed his mother murdered when he was a young boy and had crippling panic attacks ever since then when he was from a teenager onward. And he found that alcohol was the only thing he could use to stop those panic attacks. Um, but the MDMA-assisted therapy helped him revisit that night of his mother's murder and, um, you know, really kind of make peace with it and come to terms with it in a way that he hadn't before. And it's really helped him with uh, cutting back on alcohol. The, the, you know, it is difficult, I suppose, to look at causation inside the brain, but do we have a, an, an understanding or, or some hypotheses on, on why MDMA may be um, successful in treating these uh, entrenched uh, psychological conditions? Yeah, there's some really fascinating work that's been coming out of Johns Hopkins University um, in Baltimore here in the U.S. Um, this is out of a lab of a neuroscientist named Gould Olin. Uh, she has found that what seems to be happening here with MDMA and indeed with a host of other psychedelic substances, including ketamine, psilocybin, LSD, and ibogaine, is that under the right set and settings, so that means when you're going into a therapist's office and you're mentally prepared to engage with whatever it is you're trying to treat, um, you know, in this case, trauma, MDMA and these other psychedelics seem to open what is called a critical period in the brain. Now, critical periods are these windows of finite malleability when our brains are just open to learning new things. If you think about the ease at which a child learns a new language, you know, compared to me, I tried to learn Spanish a few years ago and it was, it did not go, did not take. Um, so critical periods exist because there are more things out there in the world that we could possibly learn than we could be born into just, you know, genetically being programmed and knowing, think about all the languages in the world, all the cultures. Um, so what MDMA seems to be doing is reopening a closed window for social reward learning. So it's literally allowing someone to go into their, their brain and rewire their neurons to make new connections and to undo unhealthy habits um, and learned associations they've built around that narrative of their trauma. So if if these results are right, that's an incredibly powerful tool because, um, again, it's, it's literally allowing you to rewire your brain. And that seems to explain why something that can be so short in duration, you know, just a few uh, sessions on MDMA can have... Uh, potentially lifelong positive impacts. During the, the 90s, um, I found myself in nightclubs across Dublin um, mm. and these sort of illegal raves. And there, it seemed to me that there was uh, two groups um, in, in at these raves quite a lot. And there was the, the gay community and mm -hmm. um, uh, a lot of the young men from the inner city. And what I saw there, and, and for people who, who weren't around in the 90s, didn't go to these sort of underground clubs, you know, it really was very, you know, it was a really hedonistic um, uh, uh, sort of landscape. You know, you'd have men and women with their, you know, with their tops off, you know, mm -hmm. women would be wearing bras or sports bras, and, and but, but everyone would be, you know, like half naked and they, you know, the people, random strangers would be massaging each other um, and <laughs> handing out things to each other, having these, you know, these uh, really uh, positive conversations with each other, uh, hugging all the time, just hugging random strangers. I mean, in the 1990s, um, this 
this this period was a really strange strange thing that was going on i think and it was you know obviously replicated in other countries across the world um and it, it sort of became more sanitized and more and, and and different as as the years went on but i really think that um the the openness that ireland has to to uh, the gay community i think it mm. really started in in those basements um all these places where <laughs> the best parties were attended uh, by uh, by young men um straight and gay and young women uh all mixing together and feeling absolute ecstasy for a few hours and, and i i you know that that's my own personal opinion but i don't have any scientific evidence to to attribute to that um i know this is something that um that you you were taking mdma when you decided to write this book so um is that, is that your experience of it in terms of um of it being something that opens people's minds to 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 new experiences and and i suppose this this scientific work that we're talking about does that make sense to you from your own experience yeah definitely well thank you for sharing that story i mean that is like that just sounds so beautiful and i i just wish i could have been there beautiful like is not necessarily time. the word i would, I, would <laughs> well, use. It, it, I mean it was know, in a way it was beauty in a is way. subjective <laughs> um yeah, I mean, I, I live here in Brooklyn, which is pretty much, you know, the most woke, accepting place you can think of. So, you know, there's lots of diversity on the dance floor. Um, but, you know, I did interview people, uh, unfortunately, no one from Ireland, but I did interview some British scholars who say that, uh, you know, in England, for example, MDMA in the 90s really did seem to have an effect on British sensibilities. I mean, it didn't, you know, suddenly make England some utopia. But for the first time, you know, there were like working class lads with like university people mixing on the dance floor. Yeah. Men were seen hugging in public for the first time. There's some indication that MDMA use also um, contributed to the decline in football-related violence. Uh, really interesting research on that subject. But um, yeah, I mean, MDMA lowers your defenses. It lowers activity in the amygdala, which is the brain's fear center. So you can be more open to you know having, whether it's a difficult conversation in your therapist's office and confronting your trauma, or just talking to somebody on the dance floor that you normally you know wouldn't talk to because of you know the way they look or you know your perceived relationship to them or your fear of being rejected socially. So definitely there's evidence for that happening. Well, um, it's a a really interesting book. It's called I Feel Love, uh, MDMA and the Quest for Connection in a Fractured World. Um, Rachel Neuer, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. This was delightful. In case it needs to be said, uh, MDMA is an illegal substance in this country and uncontrolled, which means you do not know what you get in an ecstasy tablet. And anything in this particular interview uh, was no endorsement of taking that uh, in case that wasn't obvious. I'd love to hear from you if you have uh, stories of your time uh, in the 90s uh, going to to these sort of places, whether or not... um, taking drugs has opened up your mind um you can tell us your stories science at newstalk.com or tweet us we're at newstalk science you can do that anonymously of course um okay it's time to look at some of your comments from last week's show and uh, if you remember we were talking about um pollution and air quality uh, dan and cork says I'm 44. When I was young, you could see and smell air pollution every day for eight months of the year. We all had asthma or at least what we thought was asthma. That phenomenon seems to have gone and the air is much cleaner now from where I am. Uh, I think smog from cities, of course, has changed a lot since the peak of um, post-industrial times. Um, But 
we do um, we do know that there's a lot of other things that are that are at play, and um, and air quality is is much more important than we realise. I think. Someone says it's typical dust from MDF two point five micrometers. So important to know. I don't know. Is it, and why is that important to know? Typical dust from MDF. I've no idea. Does anyone know? You can let us know. We'll. we'll let the taxi know next week. When a city uh, reaches a point of unsafe air pollution, are local uh, authorities or government obliged to inform the population of that? I know they do in certain cities. Um, the protocol is to do that. Obliged means that whether or not they are legally mandated. They, they, they may be in, in certain countries. I'm not quite sure uh, in Ireland, but certainly there is a pr- procedure of um, of letting people know when that's been measured, when it's unsafe, of letting people know today's the day to stay inside, certainly in, in larger cities in Asia and in, in the United States where it is a, a, a big factor. We were also talking about this extraordinary uh, woman in the United K- Kingdom who doesn't feel any pain. She has a, a condition called analgesia, but weirdly, she also does not feel anxiety or stress or fear and that is uh, the unusual part of this uh, woman called Joe Campbell um, and so we talked about that last week um, because she may unlock treatments for anxiety and, and you know we, we know a huge issue right now with the young people is anxiety they're calling it a massive epidemic in the United States and uh, the numbers coming out of there are terrifying number of uh, you know, young women saying they are just not happy is extraordinarily high. Uh, men a little bit lower than that, but doesn't necessarily mean they're not feeling the same thing. She f- and someone says, "I'm sorry." Now, uh, how can she feel no pain? What happens if she stubs her toe? If she stubs her toe, she feels the sensation of the a toe hitting the the wood, but it's not painful for her. She does have sensation, but the sensation is not painful. She doesn't experience pain. Pain, of course, is generated in the mind. Um, If you think about it, when you burn your finger, a signal has to go to somewhere in the brain uh, to tell you that you've hurt yourself. And the pain is actually generated in your mind, um, which is why some people can have pain in the finger that has been cut off, uh, right? So this phantom limb pain. Uh, So that's how she she has it. It's analgesia. It's not uncommon. I think one in 20,000 people has analgesia. But to also not fear, not not experience anxiety or depression, that is is unusual. Someone says, is it unhealthy for her to experience no depression or being down? Surely a regulated mix of emotion and feeling sad is part of human life. That's a, I mean, that's maybe more of a philosophical than a medical question. I don't know. I what what are the positives of feeling feeling depressed? I mean, maybe you would act to avoid that, but if you don't feel it, then you don't need to act to avoid it. Philosophers. Or, or thinky people, any, is, would it be a bad idea to feel no pain, feel no sadness, feel no depression, but just feel normal, but still be able to feel joy? I don't know. Another person says, does that no pain gene mean that she has, uh, does that no pain gene run in the family out of interest? Don't have information on that actually, um, on, on, on whether or not her parents have it but of course it is quite rare so I'd imagine it's not something that's easily handed down I imagine it's a recessive gene but that's just my guess and another person says when did she realise she didn't have pain you know what we'll see if we can speak to her I'd imagine she's probably very sick of giving <laughs> interviews to radio people but we'll see if we can't speak to her on the programme and uh, and see what she has to say about all these experiences because I had a thousand other questions for her specifically after speaking to our scientist last week really lovely feature and, and very interesting science if you didn't miss it it's in last week's uh, episode of Future Proof 
Thanks for listening to the podcast. That's it from us on this week's show. Thanks to Marisa O'Sullivan, Simon Keane, Steve Daunton, Hugo De Silva on sound. We'll be back on Tuesday with more Future Proof in your podcast feed. In the meantime, stay curious. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sunday morning at 10 on News Talk.